Hello, James Kenny here, and welcome to my podcast, Land of the Golden Sunset, The Evolution of the Irish from Biblical Times. This is episode number 32, entitled Jack Hardy, The Tomb of Irish Shootings, and the Tipperary Number no. 1 Brigade of the Volunteers, 1918 to 1923. I hope you like this, and that you will share it with others on social media. I grew up spending my summer holidays in Tumavara, County Tipperary, and went to primary school there for a short period in 1959, the school having been built in 1945 by my father, Michael F. Kenny, 1919-2013. to 2013. I know my grandfather, Jack Harty, 1890-1975, my mother's father, as Da, to me a gentle joint, who would take me to the bog on a day out, cutting turf, drinking strong tea, and eating cheese sandwiches and buttered marietta, doubled-up biscuits. Other times he would bring me to the creamery on a horsing cart. The thrill for me was to be allowed to drive the horse back to his brother Andy's farmyard in Palace afterwards, although I now know that the clever animal, out of habit, would have found his way home anyway. On Sundays, after Mass, Jack would be found serving pints of Guinness in his pub in Tumivara to a bar full of men, while the women were entertained in the kitchen by my grandmother, or Ma as we called her, all drinking tea and eating spotted dick, brown soda cake, or cock millish. At that time, only the odd woman would be found in the snug, having a glass of port or sherry. Around lunchtime, I would be sent to the creamery for a pint of fresh cream and to the water fountain on the village square for a bucket of cold fresh drinking water. Da would then make his way to the vegetable garden and dig a pot full of spuds and a fresh head of cabbage or turnip for the dinner. Kneeling down every night to say the rosary was never an attractive event for us children. However, we got a great kick out of Da's praying when it came to his decade as he muttered through it with the pace of Speedy Gonzales. Ma, on the other hand, would distinctly pronounce every word and syllable, possibly for our benefit. To my knowledge, Jack Hardy never spoke about his time during the War of Independence or the Civil War. In fact, it is impossible to find anything in writing which was told directly by him. I believe that Ernie O'Malley tried in vain to get Jack to tell him about his experiences when he visited him at his home in Tumivara after writing his book on another man's wound, which was mainly written while Ernie O'Malley was in New Mexico, Mexico and Peru during the years 1929 to 1932. My own feeling is that Jack Harty took part in something that he understood had to be done, but he was not proud of everything that was done and many of his experiences were not pleasant. Jack Harty does appear in Ernie O'Malley's notebooks, P17B-119, but again, I believe he only gave the names and addresses of those who served with him in the Tipperary 1 Brigade to ensure that they would all qualify for state pensions. Historian Eve Morrison 
summarizes the importance of Ernie O'Malley's notebooks as follows. From the late 1930s up to 1953, Ernie O'Malley, the IRA veteran and writer, conducted more than 660 individual interviews with almost 450 separatist nationalist veterans of the Irish Revolution from 1913 to 1923. O'Malley's interviews, along with the Bureau of Military History witness statements and military service pension records, are the third in a trio of attempts between 1930 and 1950 to document retrospectively and for varying purposes the independence struggle. O'Malley's interviews are uniquely gritty, atmospheric, occasionally profane, punctuated with graphic descriptions of political violence and in terms of documenting individual experiences of the Civil War 1922 to 23 unrivaled. O'Malley's notes suggest that he was quite a good interviewer, but he still encountered individuals whose reticence could not be overcome, such as Jack Harty, a former flying column member and captain of B Company 2nd Battalion Tipperary 1 Brigade. O'Malley inserted this frustration comment into his interview notes. Evidently, they did a number of things which Harty wouldn't talk about, so I am none the wiser as to how the columns behaved. Historian Just Augustine said that when reprisals began, it was initially well-known Sinn Féin members and their supporters who were targeted. As the conflict intensified, however, and the military and police began to respond in kind, attacks became more indiscriminate. Soldiers and policemen increasingly found it difficult to distinguish friend from foe and reacted by treating the population in general with hostility. This, in turn, had the effect of turning civilians against them, thereby leading to a cyclical progression of attack and reprisal. Following the evacuation of smaller RIC stations and police huts in the vicinity of Tumivara, the RIC barracks in the village was the only police station that remained in the area. Commandant Sean Gaynor believed that policemen from Tumivara barracks had been making themselves very obnoxious in the eyes of the local volunteers and were going out of their way to provoke trouble. Volunteer John Hackett recalled in later life that most of the policemen, in particular Sergeant Begley and Constables Scanlon and Healy, were viciously antagonistic towards the volunteers. The acrimony towards these three particular RIC men arose from incidents during which it was alleged that they had overstepped their authority by assaulting local militants, in particular Jack Harty who had received baton injuries in September 1919 and was left for dead, lying in a ditch, following which a request to the IRA Brigade Council for permission to shoot the policeman linked with the alleged assault on Jack Harty was refused. However, Brigade Adjutant Sean Gaynor told the Tumivara volunteers that the refusal should not be taken too seriously, revealing the tenuous control exercised by GHQ over individual companies, he asserted that most prominent headquarters staff would rather see attacks occurring 
than having them abandoned for want of official approval and directed them to proceed with the ambush. During the early weeks of March 1920, a party of volunteers lay in wait each night on roads out of Tumivara village with the intention of ambushing a police patrol, if the opportunity arose. It was then noticed that the police had ceased night patrols as they had become too dangerous. However, they felt able to leave their barracks to attend Lenten evening devotions in the local Catholic church. Thus, a plan was formulated to attack them as they left the church. Second Brigade Quartermaster Paddy Whelan, along with John Hackett, both armed with revolvers and wearing disguises, waited outside the church until the devotions ended at 7.30pm on the evening of the 16th of March 1920. RIC constables Charles Healy and James Rock were amongst the congregation and having left the church were followed towards their barracks by Whelahan and Hackett who, each targeting a man, opened fire. Both policemen were badly wounded in the initial fusillade and Healy was shot three more times as he lay injured on the roadway. The volunteers fired extra shots to scatter the crowd and prevent themselves from being recognised and then made good their escape. Unintentionally, they also injured fellow IRA volunteer Con Tracy, who had been attending the same devotions. Despite his injuries, Healy managed to get back to his barracks, but collapsed in the doorway. He told colleagues that Rock had also been shot and that he forgave his attackers. When Sergeant Begley arrived to the spot where Rock lay mortally wounded, he found him conscious and continuously saying, May God forgive them, because I do. Rock was also brought to the barracks where two local doctors attended and did everything possible to save him. Despite their efforts, Rock died at 11.15pm that evening and Healy died the following day in a military hospital in Limerick. Within an hour of the shootings, police and military reinforcements arrived from other parts of the county and widespread raids and searches began. Hackett's house and outbuildings were among those searched and buildings were set ablaze when he could not be located. The village hall in Tumivara was also targeted and its windows and furniture smashed. At an inquest, which took place the next morning on St. Patrick's Day, the coroner remarked that it was a sad thing on the day we all wear the shamrock that we should be here to inquire into the death by violence of fine young Irishmen. The fact that two policemen were shot dead as they left the church service caused much controversy and was widely condemned at the time. In common with other priests who had previously condemned the killing of policemen, he also apportioned blame on the government stating that oppression drives the people to desperate methods of defence and revenge. Three days after the killings, Hackett and 11 other IRA volunteers, including Whelan, were arrested and following periods in jails in Limerick and Belfast were sent to Wormwood Scrubs Prison in London, along with many other Irish prisoners who were being interned Without trial, they went on hunger strike, which lasted for 21 days before they were released. Following their discharge from prison, they returned home to a hero's welcome and rejoined their IRA units. When Jack Harty died in 1975, 
Paxo Fuelon, his friend and colleague, wrote the following letter to his son Paddy Harty. Paxo Fuelon was commanding officer of the Waterford No. 2 Brigade IRA during the War of Independence. 18th of July, 1975, Akara. I was very sorry and sad to read in today's papers the sad news of the death of your father, Jack Harty, my companion and friend when we were young. To you and all his family, I send my sincere sympathy. Although we met very rarely since we heard and soldiered, I have always felt a great regard for him, with many happy memories of those days of high hopes and ideals. There were, of course, many experiences that weren't so pleasant. I remember being handcuffed to him when we were being deported to Wormwood Scrubs under defence of the Relum Act. Our captors had to get outsized handcuffs to fit us. We were both very hefty. We had the pleasure of a bit of a hunger strike to finish that episode. How the old memories come up on these sad occasions. He has peace now. I hope he didn't suffer pain before he died, and that his last days were peaceful with his family and friends. No doubt you, his family, and his many friends will miss and mourn his passing, but such is life, a life in which he played a noble, great, and honourable part, a great man. Eryesh de Gorev Aonam, Misha, Pax Ofwelon. Tumivara, known as the Greyhounds, won the Tipperary County Hurling Championship in 1910, 12, 13, 14, 19, 23, 30 and 31. And Jack Harty was one of their outstanding players during that time. He played for Tipperary in the 1913 All-Ireland Final, losing to Kilkenny. I have his 1930 Tipperary Senior Hurling Championship medal passed on to me by my mother, Jack's daughter, Anne Philomena Harty, 1926-2005, also known as Nancy Kenny. Jack Harty was 1st Lieutenant of B Company, 2nd Battalion, Tipperary, No. 1 Brigade in 1917 and 1918, and was the company captain in 1922 and 23. He was interned in Belfast Prison in March 1918 and in Wormwood Scrubs Prison in 1920, where he took part in the hunger strike. It is because of his actions and the actions of thousands of brave Irish men and women that when I was born in 1949, Ireland was a free and democratic republic. Jack Harty married Elizabeth Carlson, 1889 to 1974, from Moneygall, and they had five children, Nancy, or Anne Philomena, twins John, 1927 to 1928, and Paddy, 1927 to 2003, Eileen, 1929 to 2016, Lily, 1932 to 1973. Jack Harty was best friends with Elizabeth's cousins, John, or Jack Collison, and Jeremiah Collison. Unfortunately, the two Jacks, who had soldiered and hurled together, ended up on opposite sides in the Civil War, which must have been a significant worry and distress for Elizabeth. 
The sisters Bridget and Elizabeth Collison, respectively, participated in fundraising and safe house operations. Elizabeth was also a member of Common Naman. This organization was fundamental to the revolution, with members working as nurses, couriers, spies, and fundraisers. Elizabeth was treasurer of Moneygall Common Naman. In June 1919, Elizabeth and 11 others were taken to court for selling flags outside a church. When asked for their permit, they replied that their permit was from De Valera and could not be seen. Similarly, Elizabeth attended a fundraising dance for Moneygall ex-prisoners in July 1919. Common Amon advocated Irish nationalism supporting Sinn Féin policies, as well as fundraising for Irish prisoners and arms. Furthermore, Bridget ran a safe house, which was raided several times during the War of Independence. A piece in the Nina Garjan newspaper stated that boys on the run always had a safe refuge and good fare with Mrs Collison. Leaders were glad to rest there. Bridget and Elizabeth were essential to the revolution in North Tipperary through fundraising, providing safe houses, and disobeying British law. According to my father, M. F. Kenny, in his book, Marathon Marriage, Elizabeth told the story of nursing Ernie O'Malley back to full health, tending to his wounds for weeks after he was shot in a black and tan ambush. She told of dressing him in a pink shirt, which she got from her mother's drapery shop, when Ernie was well again and ready to leave the safe house where he had been hiding out. This story was recounted by Elizabeth and Ernie when they met up again in Tumivara in 1948. Elizabeth Collison's brothers, James, John, Pat and Maliki, were all members of the Volunteers. Her cousin, Jack Collison, as Colonel Commandant of the Free State Army, he fought to defend the new Irish state. In July 1922, was commanding officer of the Rossgrave Barracks, However, his participation in the Civil War ultimately led to his death on the 28th of July 1922 during an anti-treaty ambush on Free State soldiers. He received a fatal bullet wound to his right thigh. While he had committed to the terms of the Anglo-Irish Treaty, there were those not too far removed who could not and did not. He was 29 years old when he died. Jack Hackett the former intelligence officer of the 2nd Battalion North Tipperary Brigade said, When public drilling commenced in August 1917, the strength of the Tumivara Company was considerably increased by a big influx of volunteers from all over the parish, bringing the membership up to about 140 men. Two months or so afterwards, we obtained the services as training officer of an organiser named Sean McLaughlin, sent down from GHQ. He brought us on foot trail to field exercises and on St. Stephen's Day 1917 marched the company equipped with sticks and hurleys to Moneygall where we spent a few hours at skirmishing. There was another motive in going to Moneygall. He wanted to impress the young men of that parish so as to induce them to join the Irish volunteers. Once the Tumivara company began to drill in public it did so in the village street and under the eyes of the local RIC. There were no arrests made by the police until March 1918, when the company captain, Wedger Maher, and First Lieutenant Jack Harty were apprehended and sentenced to three months imprisonment for illegal drilling. 
While these two officers were in custody in Tullamore Jail, the public drilling continued, but there were no more arrests for this form of activity. Edward O'Leary, Adjutant No. 1, Tipperary Brigade, and Commander of the Brigade Flying Column, as well as naming Jack Harty as a member, also has said that he was a rifleman. Next day, the 4th of November 1920, we received news that a lorry of police were expected to travel from Thurles to Nina, and we moved off to attack this lorry. The position selected was at Latera, eight miles from Nina, and on the right-hand side of the road travelling from Thurles, where there was a piece of high ground covered with trees or bushes, 150 yards from the road that gave excellent cover and good command of the road. We waited four or five hours until nightfall, and were about to withdraw when a lorry of soldiers came from the Thurles side. Though, taken somewhat by surprise, we opened fire. The lorry halted for a brief period due to the driver having been wounded, but then started off again and drove through to Nina. There was no return fire from the military. Three of them were wounded. It was just lucky for them that darkness had set in and that they had not come along even 15 or 20 minutes earlier. After the brush with the military at Latera, I moved the column that night into Moneygall, five miles away. Fearing that reprisals might take place that night, I sent back Jack Harty with a section of six men to fire on the enemy should an attempt be made to burn or loot the shop and public house owned by a man called Ryan Shanin, which was situated near the scene of the encounter. No reprisals were tried, and Harty rejoined us in Moneygall in the early hours of the 5th of November, 1920. Most of the young men who were members of the GAA and the Gaelic League in Tumivara were also members of the Irish Volunteers. The brothers Tom and Jim Devaney were active members and gave their lives for Ireland in their endeavours for freedom from British rule, being shot to death while on active service with the Tipperary Brigade. On the day following St. Patrick's Day in 1918, Two brave members of the brigade, namely Jack Harty and Wedger Maher, who were also very prominent members of the famous hurling team known as the Tumivara Greyhounds, were arrested and charged with drilling with wooden guns when they claimed they were merely practicing their sport. They were charged with membership of an illegal organization and sentenced to three months in jail with hard labor. In his Bureau of Military History witness statement afterwards, John Hackett stated that the Tumivara Company of Irish Volunteers in December 1916 had Patrick Wedger Maher as captain and Jack Harty as first lieutenant. On the 26th of March 1918, sentences were also handed down at Templemore Court to the following William Ryan of Grenonstown, Tumivara, Michael Kennedy of Monaghan, Tumivara, and James Devaney of Palace, Tumivara. On the 20th of April 1918, the following brigade members were committed on similar charges to Belfast Jail for three months' detention and were taken under heavy escort to serve their sentences. Their names were Tom Devaney, Pallas Tumivara, William Bull, Patrick O'Donoghue and Sean Gaynor of Nina. On October the 31st 1919, Tom Devaney of Palace Tumivara was charged with being a leading member of Sinn Féin and of having on his person a notebook with directions for making homemade bombs. He was also charged with drilling with wooden hurleys. On the 20th of January 1920, Jack Harty of Clonalé Tumivara, 
Tomo Donohue, Nokan Tumivara, were arrested and similarly charged, sentenced and jailed. After the shooting dead of the two RIC officers on the eve of St. Patrick's Day in 1920, the known Sinn Féin activists were rounded up and sent to Wormwood Scrubs Prison in London, without any charge being preferred against them. These included Jack Harty and his brothers Andrew and Michael Harty, Connelly Tumivara, brothers Stephen, John and William Hackett, brothers Paddy and John Whelan, Ger Troy, Wedger Maher and Tom O'Donoghue, all from Tumivara. The three brothers Harty and the three brothers Hackett organised a hunger strike while in Wormwood Scrubs Prison in London, which lasted for 26 days before they were released. Jack Harty's brother Andy was the Tipperary Brigade officer in charge of the Republican police and his other brother Patrick was a section commander in the brigade, while his eldest brother Michael also saw active duty and was interred in Wormwood Scrubs. Frank McGrath, Commandant, Tipperary No. 1 Brigade, in his witness statement said, By April of 1920, there were upwards of 100 Irish political prisoners in Wormwood Scrubs Prison, and after due consideration, it was decided to take hunger strike action to secure our release. The hunger strike, of which I, as the prisoner spokesman or commandant, took charge, began on the 21st of April 1920 and continued for approximately three weeks. As men grew weaker and weaker, the prison authorities, fearing that they might die in their cells, had them removed singly or in small groups by ambulance to hospitals in London. Eventually, all were out of prison and in hospital, and an unconditional release had been secured. On the 13th of April 1920, reprisals by the volunteers were swift. The RIC barracks at Balamaki Tumivara and 223 other vacant barracks were torched. The 25th of June 1920, the RIC barracks at Burrisakane was attacked and following a fierce battle, the volunteers withdrew, having failed in their mission. In the struggle, one of their members, named Michael O'Kennedy, was fatally wounded. Frank McGrath continues, On my return from Wormwood Scrubs, I, with Edward O'Leary, then the brigade adjutant, prepared plans for attacks on three RIC barracks, those at Burrisacane, Newport and Rare Cross. I personally took those plans to Dublin and submitted them to Dick Mulcahy, the Chief of Staff. After much consideration, he agreed that I should go ahead with the attack on Barisicane Barracks. In his final instructions to me, he emphasised that the attack should not commence before nightfall and that, in the event of the barrack not being captured, we should retire at the first signs of daylight. As a first step, in the preparations for the attack, we commandeered a supply of petrol at Nina Railway Station and conveyed it to a dump at Moneygall, where it was filled into quart bottles and from where it was conveyed to Bursacane on the night of the attack, that is, on the night of June 26, 1920. I paid another visit to GHQ and secured a supply of hand grenades. On this trip to Dublin, I was accompanied there and back by Michael Brennan, then OC of the East Clare Brigade, and later 
Lieutenant General Brennan. He was on a similar mission to mine, seeking grenades for use in his own area. I left grenades with a volunteer in Dublin, who held them until I sent a volunteer to collect them and to deliver them to our men in Ross Grey. In the meantime, we made arrangements for the blocking on the night of the 26th of June of all roads leading to Bursacane and collected wool waste, which, when steeped in petrol, we proposed to use for setting fire to the barracks. I also arranged to have a faint attack made on the same night on Silvermine's RIC barracks. This attack at Silvermine's failed to come off due to the fact that a detachment of British military encamped in that village that night. A dispatch to this effect reached me in Bursacane before the attack on the barracks there commenced. Those entrusted with the work of blocking the roads did their job exceptionally well and the enemy reinforcements did not reach Bursacane until midday of the day following the attack. On the night of the attack, we mobilised at an assembly point at Ballynarrow, about one and a half miles from Borisacane. Due to the delay of the Rostray contingent in arriving with the grenades, we were unable to advance into Borisacane until two hours after the appointed time, and this naturally shortened the period allowed by GHQ for the attack. I would say that it was sometime between 11.30pm and midnight when we arrived at the house adjoining the barracks. I forced the back door open with an iron bar and induced the occupants, a Mrs. Brennan, and her children to remove to a friend's house. When this was done, we went into occupation. At the same time, a party of riflemen and shotgun men, under the command of Liam Houlihan, the brigade vice-commandant, occupied a house opposite to the barracks and two other parties went into positions at both ends of the village. We bored a hole through the roof of Mrs. Brennan's house and then broke a further one through the roof of the barracks. On a signal from me, the rifle and shotgun men in the house opposite opened fire on the barracks and we then proceeded to throw flaming wool waste through the opening of the barrack roof, followed at intervals by hand grenades and quart bottles of petrol. During the work, one of our men, James O'Mara, who was working on the barrack roof, received a bullet wound in the shoulder. We had him removed immediately to Dr. Quigley's house at the Nina end of the village for medical attention. His place was taken by Michael Kennedy. The RIC garrison were then sending up very lights, or flare guns, at regular intervals and we could hear their rifles as they replied to the fire of our men. When relieved from his work on the roof, Michael Kennedy came and stood behind me in Brennan's house, near an upstairs window which overlooked the street. He was in the act of wiping the perspiration from his face with a towel when a bullet entered the window, went through my coat and struck him in the groin. He was badly hit and we had to have him, too, sent to Dr. Quigley's house for attention. I then sent word to our men to cease fire, as I was convinced that it was their fire which had caused our casualties. We continued to use the petrol and the grenades, but the barrack was very slow to catch fire. We afterwards discovered 
that the RIC garrison had covered the upper floor with sand in anticipation of such an emergency. Our hand grenades were also not, apparently, 100% effective, as we should, in the ordinary course, have had quicker results. I had repeatedly called on the RIC to surrender, but beyond increasing their rifle fire, they made no reply. However, we maintained the attack until it was full daylight, and then, in view of GHQ's instructions, I had no option but to call off the operation. As far as I can now remember, the men who occupied Brennan's house and engaged in the attack with me from there were Sean Gaynor, Nina, Michael Kennedy, Nina, Andy Cooney, Nina, James O'Mara, Tumivara, Patrick Harty, Clanelay, Jack Hackett, Tumivara, Pat O'Brien, Silvermines, Thomas Devaney, Tumivara, John Whelan, Tumivara, Connor Donahue, Tumivara, Hugh Kelly, Tumivara, Joe O'Brien, Grawn, John Ryan, Nock, Karaj, Tom Ryan, Stuick, and Dennis Kelly, Tumivara. The men who seized the petrol at Nina Railway Station and conveyed it to the dump at Moneygall were Austin McCurtain, William Flannery, Joseph Starr, Peter Gill, and Michael O'Mara, all of Nina. Joe Devan of Nina prepared the flares and torches. Liam Hulan was in charge of the Bally William contingent who occupied the house opposite the barracks, and Edward Quinlan was in charge of the Ross Gray section who held a position at the Port Umna end of the village of Borisacane. The strength of the RIC garrison in the barracks was approximately one sergeant and twelve constables. Frank McGrath was removed from active duty after the failure of the Borisacane attack and the wounding of James O'Mara and death of Michael Kennedy by what was deemed to be friendly fire. Frank McGrath's own account goes as follows. I found myself reluctantly compelled to resign from the post of Brigade O.C. GHQ then appointed Sean Gaynor to take my place from September 1920 until the truce in July 1921, I was on the run to avoid being arrested. During that time, my work with the brigade consisted of activities such as organizing the brigade flying column, organizing the brigade IRA police force, and the establishing of Sinn Féin courts in the area of North Tipperary. I have a copy of a photograph taken in Wormwood Scrubs Prison in 1920 on the release of 52 volunteer prisoners, which does not include Jack Harty, as he was too unwell, having been on hunger strike. His brothers Michael and Andy are in the photo. The warden, pastor and nurses are also included. I also have a list of all volunteer prisoners held in Wormwood Scrubs and Brixton at that time. The list was compiled by the Irish Self-Determination League of London. Both can be shared on email by sending your address to me at jjkenny10 at gmail.com.